0: Welcome to episode 451 with my guest, Julie Peters. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show and all the social media handles are mentalpod. That would be mentalpod.com for the website. Uh, if you haven't been to the website, check it out. You can uh, browse the forum. There's a ton of different threads. You can fill out a, an anonymous survey. Maybe your survey will get read on the podcast. Um, there's about a dozen different ones that you can, you can take on a variety of, of subjects and uh, there're ways that you can support the podcast also on the uh, on the website uh i've been thinking lately i was in my support group meeting the other night and the theme was feeling like we're not enough and there are three things that really fuck with me three thoughts that fuck with me often right as i open my eyes in the morning you don't do enough you don't have enough and you're not enough. And it's much better than it used to be. But the feeling of not being enough is such a vague... It's it's almost like that clock on 60 minutes where it's just tick, 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 tick. And the feeling that if I could just do enough, I would feel like I was enough. And I would say it's a minority of the time that I feel like I'm not enough but when it when it hits me it's just this feeling of like existential dread like I'm already pushing myself as hard as I can but I don't have the energy to go beyond the amount of energy there's too many good things to watch on TV and I used to think that the answer was to push myself harder. And for some people, maybe that works. But for me, having self compassion and accepting myself where I am, especially because I've been, I've been struggling as I've shared the last couple of episodes with, with my depression. I'm going through a med change. I tried weaning myself off Lamictal and that did not work well. My depression came roaring back. And so I'm back on my regular dose. And I don't know if it's just going to take some time for, me to get back up to speed but i've not been feeling like myself i'd also tried ketamine treatments i did uh, five ketamine infusions and i was kind of hopeful about that even though my psychiatrist said he had the feeling it wasn't going to work for me and i don't think it did uh work for me i felt a little a little i don't know a little lift after the first one but that quickly kind of went uh away so I'm just kind of in this place where I'm just uh, I'm I'm just waiting it out. And as I was thinking about the not feeling like I'm enough and all the different ways that we as human beings try to present an image of ourselves that is you know, quote unquote more. I was remembering this woman who had this amazing collection of books on her shelf. And I don't know, this was probably 20 years ago that I I knew her. And I was looking at all these books and I was like, oh, I've always wanted to read this one. How is it? And she's like, oh, I haven't read that one. And I said, oh, well, how about this one? This one, I've heard great things about this one. I haven't read that one either. She hadn't read a single book. It was just decoration. All these classic books that she had and there's nothing wrong with that but it, to me it's such such an example of the ways that we try to make ourselves more i think the other way that we do it is gossiping about other people you know if it's like such a seemingly quick fix if we can you know feeling like we are less than the average person out there well then let's gossip about some of them And bring them down to our level, and we'll forget about our existential pain for a second. Now, the other thing that made me laugh was the the boyfriend of this uh, woman that I knew, good friend of mine. He was on a game show, and they, you, you know, a lot of times they'll, in between rounds of the game show, they'll ask some personal questions. And this is a guy that was not a student was not interested in anything except trying to get laid. And they asked him what his passions are uh, professionally. And I I think he was probably 24, 25 at the time. And he said, I'd really like to get involved in nuclear power. (laughs) And the thing that I loved about it was when I called him on it, we both laughed so hard and that to me is one of the most important things, not only in a friend, but in coping with our feelings of not being enough is that when we see ourselves being a jackass and trying to present this image that really isn't us is that we can stop and we can laugh about it because it's so human to want to do that Facebook thing of uh, putting our highlight reel out there. Uh, the other thing that happened this this week was uh, my girlfriend and I. Uh, we, we like to go to the beach on the the weekend, but I've been feeling bad because Gracie's been spending a lot of time alone, and so I thought, well, let's let's find a dog beach and uh, take her there. So we go to this this dog beach, and there's dogs everywhere. And one of the rules there is that you got to keep your dog on the leash, and most of the people are pretty good at it adhering to that and <laughs> it it did not turn out as as planned the route that i chose could not it might have it, it might as well have said the make the other people in the car vomit route the most twisty turny slow road that i've ever been on And I had to pull over a couple of times because Christina thought she was going to throw up. We finally get to the beach. And in my mind, I imagined that Gracie was going to be this amazing water dog. And we were going to have fun playing in the water. And she was going to get all of her energy out. And we everybody would go home happy. Well, she put one toe in the water and decided that she didn't want any part of it. She wanted to bark at all the other dogs. And... (laughs) Whenever Christina and I would lay down on our towels, Gracie would start digging. And it, it was like a cartoon that she was shoveling the sand right into both of our faces. And I, I didn't even try to stop her because I was laughing so hard. But there was this moment when I was like, okay, I'm going to, I got to take her for a walk along the beach because this is driving me crazy. And we were, so she's on the leash, and there are these two pit bulls chained to a log. It's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. And they see her, and something about her, I don't know if it was her uh, adorable little haircut. (laughs) Did you hear me talking about you? I don't know if you could hear her footsteps. She just came running in. Uh, I've trained her to come when she hears the phrase "adorable little haircut." So we're walking past these pit poles, and I'm like, "Thank God they're chained to this log." Well, they both get so excited, they start dragging the log, coming at us, and I, I didn't know what to do because I c- I couldn't outrun them, and. The, their owner immediately got up and was running after them, screaming, no, no. And I just instinctively jerked Gr- Gracie away as one of them lunged at her, like ch- jaws wide open, like, like a velociraptor. And, and I tried to step in front of it and somehow I stepped on its foot with just the pinky of my my foot and it was enough i guess to hurt the dog and make it yelp and stop trying to chomp after her but i completely fucked up my toe and has been purple ever since then but i keep playing back in my mind what would have happened if this dog had taken a bite out of Gracie. Oh, It was, I, I wish I had footage, low angle footage of those two dogs coming at the two of us. It was, uh, it was very walking dead, very walking dead. Anyway, I want to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with, uh, with Julie. This is a snapshot from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Melanie L. And her issues are depression, anxiety, and OCD. And she writes, When I met my husband 12 years ago, I was, unbeknownst to me, hypomanic. You can imagine how much fun I was, wanting to party and have sex and never wanting to sleep. Six months later, I entered a terrible depression and soon after was put on medication and have been on it ever since. There were many difficult, dark, and anxious times. I racked up $37,000 in debt because I had a shopping addiction. It took a few years for me to be properly diagnosed as having bipolar disorder, but once I was, while I was afraid of the stigma, I was also relieved to have an answer for why I felt how I felt. Almost nine years later, I'm stable, been working at the same job for five years, been married almost four years, and I am open about my mental illness. I am no longer ashamed of my diagnosis, and it does not define me. I love that. I love that. Such a a great example of the fact that that it just takes time, and, and we can get better if we're willing to accept help. In the form that it comes in. Because none of us want to take meds. Who wants to trust the pharmaceutical industry? This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Dr. Depressed, and she writes I'm currently in med school, and because of anxiety, depression, and plain old bad luck, I ended up pretty much retaking my third year. I was in class today, and one of the big fish of the department came in and interrupted for a few minutes to tell us that life as we know it was over that we will be babied no more, and that there was still time to switch to economics, and that we can tell whatever partners we may have that our love life is over until further notice. Incredibly uplifting uplifting stuff, as you can see. As he was saying this, I was underlining some of my notes when he angrily called me out for not paying attention, saying that that otherwise I was going to be part of the 60% that wouldn't pass the year. Little did he know, I had heard this speech the year before. And while at the time I felt incredibly frustrated and embarrassed as I'm writing this, the only thing that comes to mind is, I'm already part of this 60% motherfucker. Suck on my metaphorical mediocre dick. Oh, God bless you. Thank you for that. This is an email I got uh, from a woman uh, Mrs. Elizabeth Edwards, and she writes, Dear friend, please forgive me for stressing you with my predicaments. Too late. I am already using my fidget spinner. As I know that this letter may come to you as a big surprise. It did. Actually, the first time I read this, I fell out of my chair. and um, Or was I on a unicycle? I can't remember. Actually, I came across your email from my personal search, Afterward, I decided to email you directly, believing that you will be honest to fulfill my final wish before or after my death. I would like to actually fulfill her wish during her death and FaceTime it. Meanwhile, I am Madame Elizabeth Edwards. So that's happening at the same time. I'm catching her in between personae. 73 years, and from USA childless. That's actually just outside Nebraska. I am suffering from adenocarcinoma cancer of the lungs for the past eight years, and from all indication, my condition is really deteriorating, as my doctors have confirmed and courageously advised me that I may not live beyond six weeks from now for the reason that my tumor has reached a critical stage which has defiled all forms of medical treatment. Little, it's a little-known fact that cancer loves to humiliate. It loves to degrade and defile. If you look under a microscope, you can see little cancer cells jerking off on the personal belongings of the people that have tumors. Since my days are numbered... I've decided willingly to fulfill my long-time vow to donate to the underprivileged the sum of $18,500,000. I deposited in a different account over seven years because I have tried to handle this project by myself, but I've seen that my health could not allow me to do so anymore. My promise for the poor includes building a well-equipped charity foundation hospital. I actually prefer poorly-equipped Charity hospitals, because it's really fun watching people run around, not being able to get supplies. Uh, And a technical school. If you will be honest, kind, and willing, that is a lot to ask, to assist me handle this charity project as I've mentioned here, I will like you to provide me your personal data. Well, I am on that. She would like my name, my country, my phone number, my age, my occupation, but that seems a little, uh, that seems like not enough information, so I have given her my social security number, my driver's license number, uh, my mother's maiden name, a set of my keys, and some other thing. (laughs) One of our sponsors for today is the Calm app. I think we all know how important sleep is, how important it is to feel focused and relaxed. And Calm is the number one app for sleep. Uh, They have a boatload of things that can help you sleep, that can help you relax. Uh, They have sleep stories narrated by amazing voices like uh, Jerome Flynn. He's one of the guys from Game of Thrones. Uh, the great Stephen Fry, and just a lot of good stuff. Uh, so if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. And right now, you guys get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash mental. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash mental. We are also sponsored by a new podcast. It's from the Parcast Network, and it's called Horoscope Today, and it's about astrology. And we've heard a lot of things. (laughs) What a horrible sentence. We've heard a lot of things about astrology. Listen, astrology is on our radar, but have we ever put it on our GPS? Oh, God, I'm such a jackass. It's a daily horoscope podcast for all 12 signs of the Zodiac, and they are two- to three-minute daily podcasts that give you daily guidance and affirmations tailored specifically for your Zodiac sign by a professional team of astrologers. I could not know less about astrology. Um, I know that when I go to a bar and I pick somebody up, I say, what's your sign? That's as far as I know. Uh, the series is the first of its kind in the podcast space and you can listen to a brand new horoscope for every sign every day. So listen to da- uh, listen to Daily. Listen daily to find out what the universe has in store for you. Find horoscope today for free on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Simply search your zodiac sign and the word today. For example, Aries today, Gemini today or Capricorn today. Hey, that's my sign. Or visit parcast.com slash horoscope to listen now. And then I want to read this awfulsome moment before we get to the interview with, with Julie. And it's filled out by a woman who calls herself Nice Clavicle. She writes, I'm not sure how old I was when I heard this story for the first time, but it's a family favorite. Once upon a New Year's Eve in 1981, a country and Western musician strummed his guitar and sang a rocking ditty in Memphis, Tennessee, while his children and wife rang in the New Year seven hours away. This particular country singer was known for being a good cowboy rock star and following protocol—sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He loved women—well, not his wife so much—whiskey and blow, and although he hadn't touched her in five years or so, on this evening he felt a pang of nostalgia for his little wife. Or perhaps he was high. Either way, as legend has it, he put down his guitar mid-song and drove at light speed all the way back to her. She was shocked when the front door burst open and her husband rushed inside with hungry eyes. What are you doing here? What's going on? You're supposed to be in Memphis, she asked frantically. He took her by the arm and led her upstairs to their bedroom. As he flung her to the bed and kicked off his boots, his only words were this. Get ready for a good old-fashioned cowboy fucking. After a nap, he pulled down his boots, got in his van and headed back to Memphis. And that is how I was conceived.
1: Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared and we're we're just all all in this this together. together. There was no joy Overeating
0: Apathy doesn't leave any marks Numbing out Physically I wish that I was a girl
1: Panic attacks were so violent Rudderless They were mistaken for seizures
0: Shot coke in my neck The TV was talking to me
1: Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared
0: He said, there's going to be a saga of hunger strike."
1: Nothing's real
0: And I'm going to die
1: Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal Just beyond broken I'm out You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with I'm gonna stop it Fucking someone else It's okay to be
0: Eight Steps to Recovering Desire, Passion, and Pleasure After Sexual Assault. Um, you sent me a piece that you I had written, and I was just blown away by it. Not only the the nuance that you expressed in how you view such large concepts as patriarchy and recovery and forgiveness and all the other things that make it such a often taboo and mind-laden mm-hmm. topic, you you navigate it so intelligently, insightfully, and most importantly, compassionately. Mm. And um, I'm excited to, to talk to you and to hear you share more of your story and to talk about how how you got to this place where you could write this book after going through such difficult stuff your day job up till now has has been running a a yoga studio Mm. um and was it gracie's chewing a bone that that uh, just clanked against (laughs) the the table um when when did the germ for this idea come about for for writing this book
1: that's a great question um I have been working on my recovery process, I guess, just for a really long time. Um, what happened to me was quite a few years ago now. And um, I think actually my my first book, um, the germ of the idea was, was in there. Um, so I have a book called Secrets of the Eternal Moon Phase Goddesses, and it's a study of uh, 16 tantric moon phase goddesses that all have to do with desire and relationships. And um, I think... I was really working with them sort of from a yoga and meditation perspective to really help me sort out a lot of what I was thinking about after the assault. Not only in terms of the sort of initial like crisis management thing, Mm -hmm. but but what I was really curious about is, um, you know, after being sexually assaulted, especially by um, someone you trust, which is what happened to me. um,
0: It was a man you were seeing.
1: Yeah, it was. he was a friend and we had sort of started dating and it was a little bit of a gray zone in that way, but he was definitely someone that I really trusted. He was someone that I thought was really on my side, you know. Um, and so, you know, after the initial uh, phases that you go through around, like, you kind of have to survive it in some way, you have to get some initial therapy, like, there's a crisis phase. Um, but then beyond that, I really wanted to know um, how do I – Love again? How do I trust again? How do I understand my own intuition after having had an experience that makes me feel like my intuition turned me so wrong? You know, and one of um, the
0: things that I love that you tackle in the book is, uh, and I'm par- paraphrasing, but how do we make friends again with our body? Yeah, absolutely. Such an important thing and so confusing because yeah. I think so many people, myself included, after having an unwanted sexual experience, um, in many ways it can feel like a crime scene. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not the first person to say that. I I heard somebody else say that in a poem that that they did. The name of the woman escapes me, but I thought, wow, that is a perfect way to put it. Being at war with the thing that carries you around...
1: Mm -hmm. as a
0: motherfucker
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah yeah and i think you know um one of the the most common pieces of advice that we just get sort of in general is you know be present live in the now love yourself (laughs) yeah yeah but no one ever talks about how complicated that is like being present means you have to feel and if you've been through trauma and also just for so many other reasons feeling can really be awful. It can be something that we just don't want to experience. And, um, you know, trying to make friends with your body again, after something like that, memories come up, you know, emotions come up that you really don't want to deal with. And it can be really, really hard. And so I think it takes a lot of courage to be present (laughs) a lot. (laughs) What
0: was your relationship with your body, your body image? Um, just how you viewed yourself in general, uh, how you fit into society before Mm -hmm. what happened Mm -hmm. and then if whatever you're comfortable sharing about what happened.
1: Mm -hmm, Yeah. Well, I think um, one of the uh, most beautiful things for me about, you know, having the opportunity to write this book was really having that gift of hindsight, sort of looking back and seeing like, what was my relationship with my body like before? And what was my relationship with sex before? Um, And what I've really come to realize in the process of doing the research for the book and also just going back over my old stories and kind of really thinking about how all these different experiences that I've had have affected me. So part of the reason I say that is I think a lot of the time when we talk about recovery, there is this implication that you're trying to retrieve something that you lost, which you had before, and then you lost it, and then you have to get it back. But one of the things that I really um, sort of press uh, in the book is that going through a traumatic experience isn't just, like it can, it can be a part of it, but it's not just about retrieving something from before that was lost. It can actually be a process of discovering all sorts of new things that never existed before.
0: It's like lint. <laughs> all kinds of other things come along with it.
1: <laughs> you just don't know what you're going to pick up <laughs> when, you, right. when you start digging around in there. <laughs> So, anyway, all that being said, um, you know, I think before, so we'll talk about sort of being a teen, I guess. We can kind of start there. Um, I started going through a lot of stress when I was around 11. And I think that was really the time when I was understanding myself as um, having a sexual body, having a body that men. Uh, would react to in a sexual way. And I think that just scared the shit out of me, like on a very subconscious level. I didn't really know that that was what I was feeling, but, you know, I would get call- catcalled on the street from just. At 11. Like, at 11, or even younger. I mean, it started really, really young. That, that, <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm, I'm just shaking my head. Uh, yeah, I mean.
1: Yeah. Who.
0: Share some more about, <laughs> uh, 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 about that. How did you process that? I mean, it's disturbing enough for an adult woman, but for an 11-year-old
1: mm-hmm. or younger. And it was very normal. I mean, it happened many, many times. Like, it wasn't just one experience of getting catcalled that I can remember, but...
0: Do you remember what they said?
1: Um, not specifically. I don't think so. I remember that... I would be aware of it any time I walked out of the house. Like I knew that, that something like that would be coming. And like
0: you were, you were open game.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and you know, I'll be honest. At that age, especially eleven, twelve, thirteen, kind of like getting into my early teens, I wanted to be seen sexually. You know, I wanted not that I wanted that attention exactly, but I wanted the validation that like I was pretty or that I was like a wanted object. (laughs) Yes,
0: perhaps with some love and compassion behind it, rather than it being hurled at you like a cannonball.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I mean, there wasn't anything sort of, special or different about the way i looked or anything like that like i think it was just that was the culture i think a lot of young girls um you know depending on where you live and what your environment is like will will have an experience of of being uh noticed by strangers in a sexual way way before you're ready for that to be Um,
0: be fair she was raised on a girder in a construction site (laughs) so there were a lot of
1: yeah Exactly. <laughs> it's a tough place to live.
0: <laughs> what do you remember thinking or feeling when that would happen? Would, was the urge to... Uh, was it to just... Did you wish you were invisible? Did you want to run? Did you f- feel rage? Did you want to yell at them? Did you feel like you wanted to cry? What What do you yeah, remember?
1: Um, well, I think that there were things happening on the subconscious level that I wasn't aware of. So... You know, what I would do is compare with my friends how many times we'd been catcalled that day. And that was very much like, you know, who's developing faster, who's more womanly or who's prettier. Um, and that was really our.
0: And now you kids have Instagram. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: But, but there's something, I mean, obviously so insidious about that being kind of the measure of like, oh, uh, you know, I think I was learning on some level. Oh, this is where I, I can understand my value. Um, as a woman, so the the thing that is being valued is my sexual self, sort of as a commodity. And the more people want this commodity on the market, the higher value. So I it's have.
0: like you were begin, you were entering into your earning years. Yeah.
1: You know, yes, exactly. The currency yeah. of your yeah, value. Yeah, I think I was learning very quickly that you know, women's sexual power is our only value. We don't have value in a lot of other ways, and I think that's something that I just sort of picked up from the culture in a lot of, a lot of other uh, avenues. How long do you
0: think it took you to begin to see your value in non-sexual areas, to not only intellectually know it but to feel it? <laughs>
1: I mean still working on it. Oh, <laughs> still working on it. Yeah. Still working on that one. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I've had a, a feminist awareness for a very long time, you know, my mom is a feminist and like I I learned some stuff about that um from an early age, but I think it was that sort of battle on the inside where explicitly and intellectually I realized like like I sort of remember having that moment of thinking, like, "Oh wait, I shouldn't like being catcalled. I guess that's not a cool thing to want." And I, and I do recognize that I, there was a terror that came along with that as well, um, and that it it was really quite threatening to have that be happening. But just how my mind was processing it was just like, "Oh, this is this validation that I'm getting."
0: And and I think it's a great example of how uh, two seemingly discordant things can be happening at the same time there can be validation but you know it's arriving in an envelope smeared with shit
1: yes yeah (laughs) yeah exactly yeah and so so the way that manifested for me was uh anorexia so uh that started when i was um uh 13 or 14 i I think well actually it sort of started in its seeds probably when i was 11 like around that time when everything started to happen like that and uh, i talk a little bit about this in the book but um you know, for me, food was always a way to, tr- well, restricting food specifically was a way to sort of try to control my body. And I think that, again, I wasn't intellectually aware of this, but I think I was subconsciously trying to make my bo- I was trying to shrink. I was trying to make my body smaller and less visible, less visible for sure. Not so that-
0: more valuable.
1: Uh, Well, and I mean, again, it's that weird kind of paradox where like I wanted to be less, but at the same time, I knew that the thinner I was, the more valuable I would also be on that same market that I was kind of seeing my value on, but also struggling with on that level. So I think it's just, it's very confusing. Like when I look back and think about how, what it felt like just to be a young woman, <laughs> like in this society. And what, what, it's uh, confusing. And,
0: and what years were we, are we talking about?
1: Uh, 90s, I guess, for me, okay. it was uh, 90s. Yeah, okay. that was sort of my teen years, I guess.
0: So, previous to the assault that brought about the book, had you experienced unwanted sexual encounters before that? I, I think you've written that you'd been groped.
1: Oh um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, more than it, verbal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the catcalling is one thing. Um, you know, definitely groped just like in public or on transit or like, you know, in clubs or something like that. Um, and I and I had an experience of being sexually harassed at work as well. Um, it was sort of my first job um away from home. I was away at school in in Montreal and I was working at a coffee shop and my boss used to like to uh take me shopping. It was this weird thing where he'd say, "Let's have a meeting." And then, oh, let's walk this way. And then we're in a shop and he's getting me to try stuff on and like model for him, like the things that he wanted me to try on. It was extremely creepy. And I also just, I didn't know like really as a young girl, how to manage that. Like I knew that something felt wrong, but Mm -hmm. I didn't feel quite able to be like, this is sexual harassment and Mm -hmm. this needs to stop right now. And so I had a lot of weird experiences like that, where I kind of felt like something felt wrong and I couldn't quite articulate I didn't have the power, I think, or the um I didn't know that I had the power to kind of say, like, this isn't okay. And and, and
0: I would imagine for somebody who was either consciously or unconsciously predatory towards you in that moment, the sensing that you would avoid being quote unquote impolite at any cost was like catnip probably to this guy. He I'm sure he wouldn't have asked a an outspoken you know, young woman with clear boundaries yeah. to 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 do the same thing, yeah. and it is certainly not a newsflash. But the number of times that a person's niceness is used against them by a predator—you know, of all genders—it's so so common.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I really thought about um, and wanted to kind of express in in the book as I was writing it as well is that I think for me. A lot of my recovery process—it's it, very—it's a very holistic recovery process. And,
0: and did this guy expect favors from you from this, or he just wanted to drink you in by having you wear things that he found appealing?
1: Uh, well, I'm not exactly sure, but we did have a situation where I—that um, I, I tell the story in the book where I uh decided it was time for me to ask for a raise and so you know I asked I asked him if we could talk about it and he said you know sure let's sit down there was nobody else in the cafe it was a really slow moment and um I said I made my case for why I thought I should have a raise and he said you know what you give me a kiss and I'll give you a raise and in my head there were so many things going on it was that like wait what did he just ask me for a kiss like that's not okay, right? Is that okay? And he's sort of cajoling me as I, as all of this is going on in my head. And he's saying, come on, just one little kiss. Like, come on, you, let's, let's do this. Nobody has to know or whatever. And I just was really stalled. I wasn't able to kind of say like, no way, like, you know, th- mm-hmm. flip the table over. I was just sort of nervously laughing and trying to figure out how to get at myself out of that situation while maintaining that niceness and that politeness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and you have the double whammy of uh, being a young woman and Canadian.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. What's
0: the joke? That, what does a, a Canadian say when you step on their sh- on their foot? Sorry. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, sorry. It's not no. a joke.
1: It's true. Yeah. <laughs> we do that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so go ahead.
1: Um. But anyway, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not really sure what his, his total motivation was there. I'm, I'm not sure if he thought, you know, we would sleep together or what. I think he probably just liked to play with me, like, right. you know. Like probably got thing. off on
0: seeing you squirm uncomfortable yeah yeah totally and, and so what uh, ultimately happened
1: uh so i i stalled him enough and said i said no in a joking way but i was like no of course i'm not gonna give you a kiss like i said something like that um and he kept pressing for a little while and i kept nervously laughing and saying no in a laughing way and eventually he just said oh you know i'm just joking <laughs> right and i was like okay <laughs>
0: yeah then you need to take some classes in joke writing
1: yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah and then i didn't really tell anyone and i thought about it a lot because you know i think the taking me shopping thing was obviously totally inappropriate and the whole thing was just totally inappropriate it was sexual harassment but I, again, I just didn't really have a good sense that I had the power to speak up. And the Me Too movement has been so interesting to watch in that way, because I think just the volume of of people that are, that are standing up and saying, like, you know what, something did happen to me, and mm-hmm. it's not okay. Because often, before Me Too, at least, probably still in some circles, if just one person speaks up and says this kind of creepy thing happened... Everyone just says, oh, no, it probably didn't happen that way. Or like, oh, well, that's not a big deal or whatever. We don't believe you. Um, But when you have this volume of people speaking up, you start to realize like, oh, actually, that isn't okay." And, you know, if people do take advantage in that way, they should be reprimanded and, you know, possibly be taken out of that, that role. And I think back on that time all the time. And I really wish that I had you know, found out whoever his boss was and kind of gone above Mm -hmm. him and made a report in some way. But there wasn't a system in place for that. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have any kind of what to do if you're sexually harassed at this coffee shop, you know, workshops or anything like that at the time. They probably have that now.
0: Any other instances that that, that you feel would add to the broader sense of your story
1: yeah there is uh there might be a couple of other stories in there it was very interesting to kind of go back and sort of collect the stories
0: it's like an awful pinterest
1: yes (laughs) yeah terrible right but it's illuminating and you're kind of looking at it and being like no wonder this bothered me so much there were a lot of other circumstances than just this one assault you know um so the one other thing that comes to mind is that um and I, you know, this was something that I really never told anyone. I had so much shame about it. And uh, I do mention it briefly in the book. And I, um, but, uh, I was in high school and, um, I think it was phone calls. We were getting these spam phone calls and it was a woman actually on the phone. And she said, you know, we have this program where we want to, I can't believe I fell for this. We want to help, uh, young girls learn how to kiss. And, you know, you can meet up with someone who's going to teach you how to kiss. And at that age, of course, you're thinking like, Oh, well, you know, if I kiss a boy, I don't want to seem like I don't know what I'm doing. And right. I want to, you know, it's, it goes back to that sense of like, oh, well, my, my value is sexual. And so I have to make sure it's like as high of value as possible.
0: And, and preying on the competitive nature of, yeah. you know, being popular.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so I did end up meeting with uh, a guy from this quote unquote program. And uh, in the park, which just I like, I think back and I just can't believe I wasn't murdered. It's it's really like I wow, I really shouldn't have done that. My mother did raise me better than that. <laughs> Um, but it, but it happened, you know, and, uh, and it was, it was, you know, nothing untoward. Well, it was untoward. He was like an older man, you know, meeting with a, a very young girl to practice kissing. It's extremely untoward, but there, nothing violent happened. Um, I definitely felt creepy about it. And then they, the, this sort of like company or whatever it was, again, it was usually a woman on the phone, but she would call and she would say, Oh, like, we can do more levels of this. And like, you can meet up with this person or a different one and you can learn sex moves and things like that and i at least had the awareness to say no thanks i don't want to do any more like that was enough the 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 one kiss was like all that i need to experience um and so you know at least my intuition kind of kicked in at that right. at that point um but it didn't kick in before that and That's just true about what happened for me. Um, And then I remember, uh, you know, a couple of days or weeks later, there was an an announcement at the school, and it turned out that these people had been calling a lot of the girls at the school. And it was a whole, um, I don't know what, I still don't, to this day, I don't really know what it was. I don't know what the motivation was there. But you know, they kind of said like, "Don't answer these people. This is not okay." Uh, you know, warning signs. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I remember just thinking like, "Oh yeah, that sounds bad. Of course, no one should do that." You know, already sort of filled with shame that I had that I had sort of been through the first level of that already. Yeah.
0: So then let's move to the event that inspired the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what,
0: whatever you're comfortable sharing, mm-hmm. I, I, you know. Don't, don't feel like you have to be overly descriptive.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm interested in emotional arcs.
1: Yeah, for sure. I had a close friend. He and I were very close. He was sort of a best friend person in my life. And um, I had been through quite a few um, breakups and like I'd been with some guys that didn't treat me super well. And But that was on the
0: app, Guys That Don't Treat You Super Well, which is, you should have known.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Should have used a different app. Um, And uh, so I was doing a self-imposed kind of celibacy thing. I was taking a break from everything. And uh, right in the middle of that, this friend decided to tell me that he was in love with me during that time.
0: And you would have been, how old did
1: you say? This was in my 20s. I think I was 26 or so. Yeah. I can't remember exactly, but it was around then. And I said, okay, I think I might share those feelings with you, but I don't want to break my celibacy because I've made a promise to myself and that's important to me. And then he just started pushing and pushing and pushing and insisting and slut shaming. And, you know, he would kind of do this thing where he would say, you know, you slept with all these jerks and like, I'm a nice guy. Like, why won't you give it away to me kind of thing? Um, and so there was a lot of pushing and shaming and manipulating and stuff happening kind of like leading up to the event itself. And then that night, um, we were at a party, I think at his place. And I remember saying like, he was saying, I want you to sleep over. And I remember saying, okay, I'll sleep over, but I don't want anything to happen. Um, and so I slept over, and of course, something happened, and that you know, that's all you really need to know about the yeah. the experience itself. But that was kind of what and that led it up to was it. unwanted. Yeah, it was definitely unwanted. Yeah. yeah.
0: As you as you hear yourself telling the story, and now you know so many of the red flags of people yeah. that are not safe and people that don't listen. Yeah. Um, what would you say to help them recognize earlier somebody who? isn't respectful of your boundaries.
1: This is something that I really wish that I had learned like as a child. And I wish more children were taught um, this because I think, I think with kids, like we don't talk to them about sexuality. And so they end up getting really confused about who belongs to what and, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. And, and and I wish that I had kind of learned earlier on that like my sexuality is only mine absolutely only mine (laughs) that -hmm. it's something precious and beautiful that belongs to me and that i am the only person that gets to choose whether or not i share that with other people Mm -hmm. and it's such a simple lesson but i think that you know when you don't talk about it with your family at home and you don't really have a lot of good models for it and you certainly don't see a lot of like healthy consensual sex like in movies or on tv shows or whatever um you're much likelier to see a lot of violence.
0: And not gray area situations. Yeah. It's you know, and if it is it's, you know, something where where it looks like you know, maybe she's protesting or she has reservations, you know, it's done in a way where everybody's like, Isn't that hot? How we yeah. broke the door down and yeah. you know
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Possession and violence is eroticized in our culture absolutely and this this sort of like grabbing her and like taking her you know it's seen that scene is sexual passion but it that's not always how that sort of thing feels right you know yeah i mean it's just making me think of you know just like one of the other sort of circumstances that i had had um and again i don't need to go into like the whole story of it or whatever but being being like shoved into a dark room by someone and like them i guess thinking that that was sexy. And for me, it made me feel terrified. And when you're terrified, you're not really going to be having like hot, fun sex. (laughs) Like it's not, that's not really the best kind of foreplay. You know, I
0: I said, what would you say to to somebody to help them recognize the signs ahead of time? What would you say to the person like the young man that violated you? Mm. What would you say to the future hymns?
1: I think that if we all got that lesson that all of us have a sexuality that is tender and precious and healthy and good, but that it needs to be protected. Um, I think that would also help us to cultivate some respect for each other in that way. Um, and I think specifically for uh, him, I think he really quite neatly fits into um, a trend that a, a lot of men are picking up on these days, which is the sort of incel thing. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't explicitly that, but um, it's this sort of group of, of men who feel that they are incel stands for involuntary celibate. And they feel that women owe them sex and that when women don't give them the sex that they're owed, th- then that gives them the right to be violent it, it, towards those women.
0: What, on what premise do they do believe that they are owed sex just because they are a man?
1: Yeah. And I think that's something also that our culture teaches, which is that, you know, I mean, this is sort of a complex piece of about, around uh, toxic masculinity and patriarchy, I think. But, um, there's this thing that our culture does where it says to men, okay, you have to be, um, Protector, provider, and procreator. So you have to um, you know, be physically uh, in charge of the situation. You have to be the one making the money, and you have to be having sex with lots of people. And that's like the role of a man. That's what you know. we get that message a lot.
0: And to be the one to initiate.
1: Yeah, to, be, to be that. Yeah, the initiator for sure. The and pursuer. The, aggressor, the pursuer right, right. is a part of that. And,
0: and by the way, I just want to interject. I would have been one of the young men that needed that mm-hmm said to me yeah because for years i would badger you know and yeah. i thought just because i'm not pinning a woman down um or or you know just because she doesn't look terrified yeah uh this is okay and yeah. i look back with tremendous uh shame and regret uh at at my behavior
1: yeah absolutely so another, another piece of that is sort of, you know, playing the role of man in these particular ways. Um, but the other thing that our, our culture, I think, does to men is it says to them, the price of being a man is your soul, your, your feelings, your vulnerability. Um, and so a lot of quite young boys learn really early on, oh, I can't cry. I have to find some way to not cry. I have to be this soldier, protector, provider person. But
0: the payoff is I get to rule the world.
1: The payoff is access to sex. (laughs) Right. So it's like that's the lie. I talk about this in the book. The lie of patriarchy is um, you know, if you shut down your feelings appropriately and and play the role of man, which is incredibly painful because it means you have to shut down your life. The
0: stereotype movie portrayal of a man.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, so it's a very high price to to pay, but the payoff is supposed to be that now you get women because and they're then,
0: attracted to your cold, indifferent. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. Ripped
0: biceps yeah, and yeah. huge bank account.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and like with a lot of the incels, I mean, I, I don't like go and watch their YouTube videos a lot or anything. I I wouldn't want to, but just from what I've heard, you know, that's a community of people that will often. They have this a lot of self hatred and it's this like I'm a loser and I'm too skinny or I have acne or I have an ugly jaw or whatever it is and they they sort of have this idealized masculine uh, look that they're trying to go for and I've I just heard recently that some of them will be um, going and getting plastic surgery to get like a bigger jaw and all of this kind of stuff and they think like oh if I if I can just play this role better then the women will will come to me and they're missing the point of co- of course which is that which is a point that I think a lot of us miss in this culture, which is that sex is something that should be really shared. Um, between two people as an expression of intimacy
0: not acquired through impressing somebody
1: yeah exactly and the way a lot of us do sex is as a power move so even even from my perspective as learning from that really young age like oh uh so the only power i have access to is sexual power so got to get that out under control and like how am i gonna um control my sexual environment and you know uh figure out who i'm gonna have sex with and how and like you know, make that the place where my power comes from. Like this, these messages that we get from culture, it's not just that they're damaging to women because men are jerks. Like it's not that at all. It's that we're all learning really, really bad lessons about Mm. what sex and intimacy is and how to be connected with our bodies. And we're really, I think, you know, one of the things that is troubling about this moment of me too and, you know, canceling culture. And, you know, when someone, um, does something bad and non-consensual. It's just like, well, you're a horrible person and you deserve to die, essentially. Um, The the truth is that actually we've all been set up to have non-consensual situations of sex, I think, in a heterosexual pairing. Because men have been taught, be the aggressor, shut down your feelings. If you're not connected to your feelings, how are you going to really know If if in a situation things feel Mm -hmm. right or how is she responding to you or whatever because you can't even feel your own feelings and
0: the the ideal of the woman uh, certainly in the past has been smiles through adversity yeah is polite yeah um, nice all the time nice all the time (laughs) nice all the time yeah Yeah.
1: no Uh, boundaries
0: yeah that one of the things I do like uh, that that you covered of the many things I I like that you covered in the book is, is you talked about the effect of patriarchy on everybody. Everyone. Um, Talk, talk about that.
1: Oh, there's so much. Um, But yeah, I think I think mothers, Yeah, so there's this fantastic book that I reference quite heavily um, in the book called Love and War by Tom Digby, and he really does an excellent job, I think, of sort of theorizing how we got into this mess. (laughs) And he he talks about our culture as a culture of militarism, so that's sort of where he's coming from. The warrior. Yeah, yeah. And so from this perspective, uh, and this is just very basic, like in order for um, our culture to... Uh, dominate and colonize we need to have lots of expendable warriors which are men and uh, to be constantly creating new soldiers with uh, women who are mothers and nurturers so it's this like women have to be mothers and men have to be warriors and so that creates a culture where women are expected to certainly want babies i mean you know uh, women who don't want a baby, there's there's always something kind of countercultural about that. Like it's something that people can feel a bit uncomfortable about when women say, I don't think I want to be a mother because that's the the role that has sort of been set out for her from the beginning. Um, and for men, it's this warrior thing that we just talked about where it's like, if you're going to be a good warrior, you have to manage your capacity for empathy. Um, you, you can't just feel how everyone else is feeling all the time because you have to have the capacity to go out and be a soldier. Um, and so it, that's how the gender roles were kind of created. And, and,
0: and financial soldiers. Yes. You know, that is so the mentality of Wall Street is, yeah. you know, sorry, it's just business. Uh, somebody Sharks. Always, I would, yeah. yeah. If you accept that premise that it's it's not personal, it still doesn't even make sense the way it's done because so many corporations sacrifice their long-term longevity for the sake of an earnings quarter where everybody will get bonuses and they wind up fucking the corporation and all of the employees in the end and the CEO pulls the cord on a golden right. parachute and is off to strip the next company of its assets right. and turn a good profit right. uh, for, for people. And to me, that's still very much the warrior. Yeah, it's it, It's not what is the right thing to do, it's what can you get away with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think for that person... There's not going to be any fulfillment in that, you no. know? And so I think that's, that's sometimes what happens with men who um, they, they pay the price of masculinity. They do the thing, they make all the money and they still aren't happy. They still aren't fulfilled and they don't have meaningful relationships because what they've been trying to do their whole lives is just shut down their capacity to feel. And, you know, the only way to really have deep and meaningful relationships is to be able to. Feel <laughs> and to share that, right? and to share the, that's what that Share is.
0: the the, the warts that we try to Absolutely, hide. Absolutely, yeah. You know? We have to be
1: able to access our vulnerability. Yeah. And when you're just out there being a warrior all the time, yeah, you're making money and you're quote unquote succeeding. But what's on the other side of that?
0: I, I bought into that myth for years, and it and it almost killed me. You know, yeah. at, the, at the height of the my earning power being on TV, I had a. Billboard on Sunset Boulevard. And that was, I I always thought, like, if I could get that, then I would feel like, okay, I've made it. And I looked at the billboard and I just thought, fuck, I don't, I no longer have respect for Sunset Boulevard. Right. You know, it didn't raise me up. I brought them down. Right. And I realized there's something inside of me that can never be filled, that is bottomless. And I didn't realize that my plan, my way of buying into the kind of capitalist patriarchal lie was that if I can be impressive enough, I will find peace because I will feel financially safe and I will feel romantically safe. Right. And it was a lie because I didn't care about anybody. It was all about me. Yeah. And there was no connection, no intimacy, no spirit. My spirit was dead and it wanted to take my body with me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was
0: very confusing. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're taught from the beginning, like, this is all you have to do. And this is the plan. And, you know, these are the the landmarks of success. And this is what that looks like. And on the other side of that, you'll be happy. Mm -hmm. But that's not how it works.
0: No. And I I was an entitled asshole, you know. And if you would ask me, you know, are are you entitled? I've been like, no, I'm humble for somebody who's on TV. Well, that (laughs) might have been true, but I was still not humble compared to the general population. (laughs) And, and, could not see my sense of entitlement.
1: I think that if we can understand that, you know, that wasn't you being an asshole for no reason. That was you acting on cultural conditioning and, and you know, playing the role that you had been taught to play. And, you know, that doesn't absolve you of, you know, taking responsibility for your actions. But I think it's really important that we keep in mind that we're all just trying our best out here and we fuck it up all the time. We
0: all make mistakes. We all
1: make mistakes. And, you know, all we can do is kind of learn from that and try to figure out another way of being. And so much of my book is really... The you know kernel of the message is really that you know if you've been assaulted, and not only sexual assault, but if you've been through a trauma, and if you've been through an experience like that where you feel like, man, I really did some things and I hate myself for it, um, no matter how bad it's gotten, whatever you've been through, you can always make choices to change and, and become another way. And you can uh, take those bad experiences and the worst parts of yourself and let them teach you something. Just as an example, I was a horrible person back then and I'm a completely different person now. Um, that is a way of disowning who I once was Mm -hmm. and trying to separate myself from something that's actually true about me, right? And so I think, you know, a lot of it is about trying to like, you know, notice the shame that's in that and be able to hold that and let it go a little bit and just kind of be able to say like, yeah, I did some horrible things and I feel bad about it. And I'm trying now and I'm doing my best and it's okay that I have these aspects of mm-hmm. myself that I'm not so comfortable with because I'm a human being.
0: And, and to ask yourself, to make sure you're not bullshitting yourself, how am I going about yeah, making sure that I'm not that person anymore. What yeah. am I doing? Yeah, because am I getting help? Am I reading books? Am I attending workshops? Am I finding a set of friends that are more sensitive and yeah. keep me grounded?
1: Yeah, because if you just disown that person and pretend that never happened, you have nothing that you can learn from them, right? Because that person that you once were is the person that's going to say, you know, uh, does this life look like what it was then? Right. Like you have to be able to, that, that person, just again, sort of as a metaphor, like that that person that I hate and fear or whatever, I need to be able to have that integrated into my body so that I know that I'm making different choices now and that I'm not that person again. And if I just try to forget all about it, I'm just going to keep making the same mistakes all over again.
0: You know, the thing that that I've discovered is, as I've dealt with the shame Opened up to people, the very things that I thought would drive them away, the things I thought that I needed to hide mm-hmm. to be loved, were the very things that bonded me to those people because they loved me for my vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And they were able to see past that and see something that I couldn't even see in myself, which was that I was trying. Yeah. And I think we all love someone who's trying. It's yeah. why Homer is such a beloved right. character. He's, a f- you know, he's an idiot he's selfish but he he tries yeah. and i think we forget that and i think that's one of your points too in the you're talking about uh, the me too movement and just kind of canceling people's lives rather than saying what can we take from yeah. it what let's communicate with each other you know we're not saying that person shouldn't have consequences but, let's examine the root causes of how this culture is becoming this way,
1: yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um when I heard the interview that you did on the podcast I Survivor," which I quote from in the book, mm-hmm. um that was what I really appreciated about your your point of view was really this nuanced sense of like, okay, if something bad is happening, it's, uh, I call it monsterizing, like when we, we sort of pick someone and we say, okay, this person is a monster, they're a horrible person, and if we punish them and cancel them and get them fired and push them off into a deep, dark corner somewhere that we never have to look at again, we've solved the problem. Mm. And that's not the case, that's scapegoating, right? It's, it's, not, it's refusing to look at how this is a systemic issue that we all participate in.
0: Right, because we can still have compassion and communicate with them while they're in prison. Yes, you know we can make sure a psychologist visits them. You know, ask them how are your support groups going, whatever. And I'm yeah. not saying that this person, sh- you know, should get their job back when they get out, but not wanting to ever hear from somebody again. Yeah, who has who has done something sick. I don't think is the answer. I think at least an attempt should be made. Maybe some of those people are psychopaths who are just always going to be trying to manipulate and harm. And you know, I don't know what the answer is for that. You know, third strike, you're you're on the island where we never talk (laughs) to you or whatever. But it it just seems like there's a middle ground between. Yeah,
1: definitely. And um, you know, Aziz Ansari is someone that I think about a lot, and I write about this a little bit in the book too. Um, because he was someone that had uh, basically a, a bad date, kind of a non-consensual encounter that was pretty blurred lines. And like he...
0: The communication was the, not... The communication was not,
1: was not there. Yeah. And she experienced violation... And he didn't intend that. Mm-hmm. Um and so that was really confusing, I think, for a lot of people to look at that and see like, well we want to believe her, but at the same time we kinda of believe him it's and the we perfect don't perfect
0: example of gray gray yeah, area. Yeah, I absolutely.
1: Think. And that's the sort of thing that happens all the time. Like that is not uncommon right. for there to be this weird kind of like something bad happened and I feel bad about it, but he didn't mean it and what does that mean? And, and you even know,
0: just saying that, I feel anxiety that someone's gonna jump down my throat. And, and say you're part of the problem you know can't you see they they don't want the nuance
1: uh, yeah in absolutely the, in the middle yeah yeah
0: so back to you so you experience this unwanted assault as opposed to the wanted assaults which as we know <laughs> it's all the rage I'm such an idiot um uh, describe what happens to you emotionally how you feel about your body, how you interact with the world, other people, and how mm-hmm. did you get then to the to the place where you could be intimate again?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a long journey. Yes. Uh, but the first part of it is what I like to think of as the fog of trauma and... I knew something that went wrong and I sort of tried to find some help, but I had a lot of pushback from people, um, who like didn't believe me, um, or, you know, I had this counselor that kind of, that was kind of saying like, oh, you know, it's because of your boundary issues and it was like, it's sort of implying that it was my fault. And so I shut down and I just was like, okay, I guess I'm not dealing with that. Um, but you had said no, I don't want this. Yeah. 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 And, um,
0: it's a hell of a counselor.
1: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's that can happen sometimes. I mean, you know, like the counselors are also they're trying their best and like, you know, may not be trained in this stuff. And so
0: and it's not either or it's like, yeah, you might still need work on your boundaries and you were assaulted.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did need to work on my boundaries. Right. And it it wasn't my fault. (laughs) You know, like it was, uh, yeah, something for him to take responsibility for. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I sort of think back on that time. I think there were about four years there where I just, I just wasn't really present. I call it going gray. Like I just sort of lost my color. And I
0: I so relate to that when you, when you talked about that, Mm -hmm. I was like, that's the perfect description of it is everything just gets blurry and fuzzy and, and uh, meh. Yeah. It's just meh.
1: Meh. Very meh. And I ended up in a couple of consecutive relationships with guys who just seemed safe. They weren't, as it turned out, but they seemed like they just wanted to be with me. And I, I had this weird sense that, like, if I had a boyfriend, I would somehow be safer. Like, it, this wouldn't happen if I was never in these sort of gray areas or whatever. And I could just have a boyfriend. Were you not still the solution? <laughs> was
0: there still a debate going on in your mind as to whether or not it it counted? As an assault, because you know that's a uh, a really common thing that survivors have is oh, yeah. minimizing, you know, what happened to to us, and saying other people have it worse. Who am I to use this word oh, to yeah. describe it? Had that Absolutely. argument ended in your head, or is that still going on?
1: That's still going on in my head today. Oh yeah. yeah, and I mean that's something, and I do I do address it a little bit in the very beginning of the book because it was really hard for me to sit down and start.
0: It's it's terrifying. Yeah, because and
1: and a big reason is I just thought you know, my assault wasn't assaulty enough. It wasn't you know this sort of big violent.
0: Such a great phrase. (laughs) My assault wasn't assaulty enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like it just you know it wasn't that violent, and way worse things have happened to so many people. And I just really still struggle with kind of like having the right to tell the story. But what I keep reminding myself of is. A, it's extremely common. This is often how it happens. Mm-hmm. Somebody um, you know. Yeah, somebody somebody trusted and What I've come to understand about trauma is that it's not about what happens to you. It's about how your body processes whatever it was that happened to you. Yes, the ripples. Yeah, yeah. And so trauma is really something that's happening on the inside. And so, you know, I had a traumatic, you know, response to it. And it was relatively mild traumatic response. It wasn't like a really extreme one, Um, but it was that. And I I don't know, were
0: you you described sitting in your car kind of dissociating? Yeah,
1: yeah. it sounds to me
0: like you're kind of minimizing your your response. Don't let me, yeah, you know, yeah. fucking mansplain yeah. something to you, but Well,
1: yeah, absolutely. And and one of the other things that that helped encourage me to to tell the story as well is that I started to notice that pattern. I know a lot of survivors, most of the women in my life and several of the men, you know, and and there are a lot of trans and non, non-binary people who've been through this stuff as well. Um, but I know a lot of them and um it's very very common for Uh, these survivors to say oh way worse things have happened and like what happened to me wasn't that bad and you know whatever and they just they it's very difficult for survivors to even own the term of survivor to even own that that something bad happened and I started to realize that and I thought man Like we're all doing this, like there's something to this, you know? And it's a shame thing. Like I think it's this way of just kind of being like, Well, if you if I let you see what happened to me, you'll see how it really was my fault and how I really don't deserve to recover.
0: And the other thing that I think is at play is when we begin to realize that something horrible is going on, it's like this veil comes down and it pulls our soul back. Yeah. And we don't fully feel feel it. We intellectually may understand what happened to us, but we don't. It's like our body saved us from the 100% horror yeah. of it. Yeah. And so we don't. We think that if that really happened to me, that word, if I really experienced that word, yeah. it would have felt worse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Does
0: that make sense?
1: Totally. Yeah. And I think it's kind of amazing in some ways that our bodies are capable of doing things like dissociating. Like I mean it's not sort of a healthy coping coping mechanism oh, over time but like impulsive
0: hobbies. Yeah. Thank you brain. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh not not functional over time but in the moment like it's kind of amazing that we can be going through something, and our brains sort of have this switch that they'll they'll hit sometimes, where we just we are able to kind of step outside of it a little bit, um, and we have to work on that in the recovery process. We have to find ways to kind of go back in and let ourselves fully feel. Because
0: um, often we experience it as just not being interested in life. Yeah, I'm depressed. I don't feel like doing anything. You know, as you yeah. write in here, I I want to binge watch uh, Grey's Anatomy. Grey's
1: Anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah, and so many other things, and like it really, it happens like that for a lot of survivors. There's just this, this long period, I think, of of just trying to survive every day, like trying not, and that, and a lot of that is really just trying not to feel that thing a hundred percent, not,
0: and not even realizing that's what we're not trying to feel. Yeah, we don't yeah, realize absolutely. that the numbness yeah. is related, perhaps, to the thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And so for me, yeah, it was about four years. And I I had an awareness that I had a thing that I needed to deal with, but I wasn't dealing with it. And, you know, I started to kind of want to figure it out. And I was just having all sorts of other things, too. Like, I really, I'm very, very close with my body now. I have a very, like... Intimate, loving relationship with my body, which is complicated and not always easy um, and it and it 's hard one. This is something that i don 't think I had before all of this happened, like when I was sort of an anorexic teen that was just not eating food so that I could not have to feel my body and whatever it was, um, and going through sexual experiences that i wasn 't even there for. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Um, But now I do feel very close to my body. And one of the things that I really appreciate is that during that time, as I was trying to avoid myself and not feel things and just kind of get through the day, my body was just chattering away just trying to tell me that something was wrong i would i had this thing called um dermatographia which is a form of hives where Mm -hmm. you could draw um with a fingernail on my skin anything you wanted and it would rise up um which i just think of like what a crazy metaphor of like you know i think of sort of someone trying to write out help in the sand right (laughs) you know just kind of being like something's wrong like it's rising up from the, the depths and I still get hives. touch is an issue with us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tell the story in the book, but I had an allergy test around that time. And, um, the, the allergist, uh, you know, gave me like all the little dots on my arm, uh, with some essences of, of different allergens. And then he scratched right above that just to see, um, how much that stimulus would create an allergic reaction. And the, the touch was the thing that I reacted to m- most of, of anything. And so he was like, okay, you're allergic to, uh, trees. Apples, pineapples, and human touch. And I was like, yep, that is correct. <laughs> that is oh exactly my how I God. feel. Um, like I was always under stress. Like I just always had this low level of stress that was happening all the time. And, and how often were you thinking about the event? Um, I don't think I was thinking about it explicitly all that much, um, unless something came up that would kind of trigger it. Um, because so what, I think I was actively trying to avoid it.
0: So you, you would go, what, maybe a day a week, a month, without thinking about it.
1: Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, we weeks. It would come up. That's a good question. I'm trying to remember now.
0: Because I think that's such an important part of the puzzle, is fighting to heal from the thing that we're not aware is the thing.
1: Yeah, and trying to, and like I, th- you know, I think on some level knowing that that's the thing, but really not wanting it to be that thing. Right. And so you know, it's it's that. It would rise up, like it would. It would come from the depths every now and then, and I would think, okay, I have to deal with this, and then I would push it back down again. Um,
0: And you were avoiding physical intimacy along, along. I mean, not completely. Like
1: I had these boyfriends, but you know, one of them was just not a good person to be with after sexual assault. Like he really pushed me into things sexually that I didn't want to do. And I just only have like bad memories (laughs) of those sexual experiences. And that was a lot of like, you know, sort of shut up and close your eyes and deal with it sort of thing. Um, You said
0: that or he said that to you? That
1: that would be like how I would be feeling when it was going on. It was just kind of like me trying to get it over with sort of thing. Um, Yeah. I feel like that was something that I experienced a lot in my sexual life was just kind of like, Okay, I'm doing the thing, like I'm I'm acting the mm-hmm. the role that I'm supposed to be acting and we've made it to this part where we're having sex and when is this going to be over? And I mean I'm sure I had some pleasure in those experiences as well, but I wasn't really present with it.
0: Right. When one partner is feeling dread around sex, a conversation should be had. Yeah. A conversation should be had. And that was something that had never occurred to me because yeah. I thought I'm just a failure. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm a bad version of a man.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't even occur to you to say to your partner, "I don't really want to do this," or "I don't feel comfortable," or right. whatever. Because at least f- from my experience, it was just like this is just the thing I have to do. Right. You know.
0: Because a loving partner would say, "Oh, uh, I'm. Thank you for telling me. Let's let's talk about this. I don't want you to do something that you don't want to do." Yeah. And and a partner who needs to work on themselves would say, but I need to get laid. Yeah,
1: exactly. And not yeah. want
0: to know why it is Yeah, that you're, or to say, well, let's, you know, let's explore this together. Let's, you know, maybe go to counseling mm. or is there a, you know, a book I can, can I start looking for books for yeah. us to read? Or- yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, for me, um, so what happened towards the end of that cycle, the four year cycle, um I almost got married. I almost got engaged to the boyfriend that I was with at the time. But I had some sort of deep intuition from somewhere that this wasn't right and this wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um and so I ended the relationship uh like a few months before my 30th birthday and I was like, okay, we're doing this, you know, how is this going to go? Um and I started seeking counseling and sort of doing some work around it at that time and that was I think that breakup was just kind of like, okay, time to heal, like time to deal with this. And that same year I met someone that I started uh, a sexual relationship with and um, we were having sex one day and I started checking out, which I'll do sometimes. And he noticed no one had ever noticed before. And he stopped me and he said, Hey, where are you? What's going on right now? Like, if you, are you into this? Cause if you're not into this, we're not going to do this anymore. And I sort of remember him almost yelling at me in this way where he's like, never, never do something with me that you don't a hundred percent want to be doing. Promise me that you'll never mm-hmm. do that. And it really snapped me out of it. Like, I just, you know, I, it, not that I'd never had sensitive partners who cared about how I felt before, but I had never had an explicit conversation about this is what consent means and this is important to me too. And I don't want you to do something you don't want to do. And that matters to me. And you also have a responsibility to me as your partner to stay present, to be here. Right. You know, and I just had never thought about it that way before. And so, you know, that man really, really helped a lot. Like he was somebody that really like showed me in a very real way, how things could be different sexually. And I learned a lot from that relationship.
0: And so what were the, some other things that have helped you kind of reclaim your enjoyment of uh, pleasure, how you view your body, um how you view yourself in the world.
1: Mhm. There's so much. Um uh, you know, counseling I feel like is the first place to go like anybody who's who's dealing with this stuff and a counselor who has some education around sexual assault because, you know, as we talked about with my other counselor, it's it has to be the right person, yeah. Um, and so I, I actually found a counselor through the um, uh, Women Against Violence Against Women uh, non not for profit uh, organization in in Vancouver. And uh, uh,
0: Ra- Rain is another great one here in the states. Rape yeah. and Incest National Network RAINN dot org, and they can connect uh, people uh, with either low cost or free uh, resources. Uh, yeah. if there's been ever a history of any type of unwanted sexual uh, encounter, no matter how long ago it was.
1: That resource is out there, and I really do encourage survivors to take advantage of the resource, because there are a lot of really good organizations out there that will help in that way.
0: So counseling?
1: So counseling, and then through that same organization, I was going to groups, um, and I found that the the group work was just really really useful like in a totally different way from the one-on-one counseling but being with other people in a room who had been through something similar and you know not talking about our experiences but talking about our lives and like our process and you know
0: ripples comparing ripples to me is so healing
1: yeah yeah because i think a lot of survivors like you just shame is such a major part of it and you feel so alone like you just feel really isolated um, and when you can be with other people who've been through something similar, you start to realize like all those weird little things that you've been thinking in the back of your head, you're not the only one that thinks that and there's nothing wrong with you and it's okay.
0: And hearing a room full of us all laugh at the same thought yeah, that we yeah, have, yeah, yeah. that is among the most healing it's things amazing. I've ever yeah. ever experienced. Yeah. its It feels like the home I've always been looking for.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So the the group work was really, really helpful as well. And um, I'm a very, um, like I said, I have a very intimate relationship with my body and I'm a yoga teacher. So yoga is my uh, place that I go. And that comes with a caveat because I've had some bad experiences with yoga as well. And there are a lot of weird damaging mythologies in yoga around things like, oh, you know, karma. And like, if something bad happened to you, you deserved it because it meant that you did something bad in the past which is not like what karma actually means, but that's how we sort of interpret it. What does karma actually mean? Uh, So karma, it means action. And the idea is that your actions have consequences, but from a a Hindu perspective, like, you know, from sort of where that comes from, um, it's more this idea of the cycle of... um, uh, reincarnation and that an action that you have in this life will have a consequence either in this life or maybe in a future one, you don't know what that consequence is going to be. Uh, and it has nothing to do with your intention. So even if you're doing really good works, you could cause a negative event to happen at some time in the, in the very far future.
0: Thank you for telling me that two hours before I go to sleep.
1: <laughs> well, and I mean, part of, part of the, 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 the meaning of karma is You know, bad things do happen to good people sometimes. Yes. And, you know, whatever it is that happened, sure, maybe there was a reason, but you're not going to know what the reason is and don't even try to figure it out. It's okay.
0: And I'm not a a big fan of uh, the words good or bad either Mm -hmm. because everything I believe contains everything. Yeah. There is a universe within, and I don't just mean physically, but I mean emotionally and spiritually. There is a universe inside every moments, every interaction every relationship every event it's really the intent and the sense of purpose and meaning that we bring to yeah. that that enables a life to be satisfying yeah for me yeah that's what i find
1: yeah so yoga practices and mindfulness practices have been really useful in those ways but it's they're also complex in this way where i've kind of had to pull apart like okay what am I learning about this, and what are the tradi- what are the actual traditions that I'm learning about here, and who's teaching me, and what are their histories? Because yoga cultures have lots of um, culty aspects and Charlatans. sort of dangerous things, yes. yeah. And there are lots of uh, sexual predators that have been known to be the Bikram like, guy, Bikram, yeah. Like yeah. there's a lot of them. So you know, it's also kind of a dangerous thing. But for but for me, the yoga practice is really like what it's about is that I, you know, put my body in a shape and I think about how it feels. (laughs) That's just what the practice is. Um, And so doing that over and over again, over many years, you just start to get to know your body a lot better and it starts to matter to you whether something feels good. Well, whether something feels like comfortable or painful or, you know, uncomfortable, but in a good way, or, you know, you start to get these nuances of, of how things feel in your body. Um, And, you know, I meditate daily Um, And I do mindfulness practices all the time. So it's not necessarily formal meditation, but um, mindfulness as a practice of observing honestly what's happening and being kind to whatever it is that I observe. Mm -hmm. Even when I'm in shame or judgment or, you know, noticing myself saying something in my head that's really horrible. I'm just like, oh, okay. I noticed that that's happening and that's okay. You know, I'm Mm going to keep trying to, to, to do, to make my choices mindfully or whatever it might be. Um, and so, you know, another piece of advice that I think that you hear about a lot in yoga is this trust your gut thing, um, follow your intuition, uh, this sense that there's some kind of truth that can be accessed in your gut, some, uh, Innate truth that is outside of you that you somehow know, like as if you had a crystal ball.
0: I I believe, yeah, that our bodies have a quality of a divining rod in some ways. Yeah. And I I believe our passions are one of the healthy passions, Um, not to be confused with, you know, compulsive uh, passions. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to, you know, tell the difference between the two, but I have found that those are the breadcrumbs to a beautiful life.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the way that I think about it is just like that sense that, you know, someone I trusted assaulted me, so my intuition must be broken. Like there must be something wrong with it. Um, but the the practice of really tapping into those deeper things that we feel and, you know, not only how is my mind reacting to the situation, but how is my heart reacting and how is my gut reacting? Um, and not just blindly going with whatever it is, because, you know, sometimes things that feel good, feel good because they are familiar and right. things that are familiar aren't necessarily the best things for us right. you know um, and things
0: that sometimes feel scary are the best things
1: absolutely for us and yeah. how to
0: know whether it's my central nervous system freaking out yeah or my addict not wanting to recover
1: exactly absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and so i think you know like you know using our intuition in this way where it's like oh, I'm just going to feel comfortable all the time and never feel uncomfortable. That means you're never going to grow. There's never going to be any growth through that process. And so sometimes we have to, and sometimes intuition comes in in this way where it's like, you know, this there, there's something that I really want to do that actually does really scare me, but I know that I want to do it anyway, and I can feel that. But it's very difficult to piece apart the fear from the desire, from the passion, from the craving, from the addiction, from the pleasure. Like all of these different things, there's so much going on. And
0: that's why it's so great to to be in counseling or in a support group because yeah. when you have these comfort, conver- and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but. Until we have that conversation with somebody, we sometimes don't realize what it is that we're thinking and feeling until we have to articulate the not knowing to somebody.
1: Yeah, and for me, I think of it as, uh, I totally agree, and I think we do need relationships with other people. Um, therapeutic relationships and intimate relationships and all kinds of things to sort of heal and, and learn those things. But, uh, you know, for me, I, I also think of it, my yoga and meditation and journaling and eating practices and sexual practices, they're all ways of being in relationship with myself, working on the communication between my mind and my gut and my... G-
0: give me an example of each one of those.
1: Okay. So... Um, if you're comfortable. So the meditation practice... Uh, I do a very simple sit in the morning while the coffee is brewing. <laughs> it's like, that's how I fit it into my routine. Mm-hmm. It's like about, you know, seven or 10 minutes or something like that. And I just sit and I just see what's on my mind and I process whatever I was just dreaming about. Um And you, I let... you
0: sit on the floor? Do you sit cross-legged? I
1: sit on my couch cross-legged. Okay. Yeah. It's not really very traditional looking. <laughs> okay. Um And I notice, you know... Is it hard for me to sit today? Am I having trouble being still with the thoughts that are on my mind? Do I feel anxious? You know what are the things that I am looking forward to today or or need to do today? Um, do I feel like I want to sit longer and I need more time here like it's just a way of kind of observing what's going on, so I really don't try to get silent in my mind. I don 't do a mantra i don 't really have any goals when i 'm mm-hmm. meditating. That little piece of time during the day is just. I often think of it as, you know, a listening practice. So, um, and this is a practice that I do in my life as well. If you go and sit down with a friend to have coffee with them, Mm -hmm. ideally you want to really listen to them. You want to say, how are you? And then as they're talking, you don't want to jump in with your own stuff. You don't want to ask them a million questions. You don't want to try to tell them how to feel. You just want to shut up and listen and just really pay attention to how your friend is doing. Um, and I got some apologies to make. (laughs) and this is, it's a, it's a relationship practice that is revolutionary actually. And one little trick that I use sometimes, I don't always do this, but occasionally when I'm talking with someone, especially if they're telling me something kind of intense, I do this eight beat thing in my head where when they finish talking, I wait eight beats before I jump in. Um, and it's a long enough amount of time that they have more space to keep going. If there's more to say, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, they can kind of feel into that place where I notice that sometimes people do jump in and say more and sometimes they'll pause for a little while and they'll say, so that's it. And I'm like, okay, now I can respond, but I want to really give people some room to talk to me because I feel like we don't listen to each other that much. We're usually jumping in with our own stuff.
0: Right. Uh, And, and thinking, Oh, as soon as she's done talking, I want to say this. Yeah,
1: planning my response before the person has even finished talking. And Sometimes
0: it comes from a good place, a place of uh, I'm excited to move this conversation forward and I want you to know this because then you will know that we're meant to be good friends because we both feel the same about this thing. And oftentimes the intent is really good or sometimes the intent is is that uh, I don't want to be invisible. I want you to see me. I want you to validate me. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. 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 And so it's really powerful to just sit back and listen. And there's more to say about that. But that's kind of what I'm trying to do when I'm meditating is just listen yes. um, to not jump in and tell myself how to feel and make all kinds of plans, sort of like thinking passively rather than thinking actively, just letting my mind do whatever yes. it is that it's doing and trying to just notice, notice what's yeah, going on.
0: It's kind, of, kind of the boss checking in on the brain, seeing yeah. how it's working. <laughs> yeah, going. yeah oh, exactly. The brain seems yeah. a little uh, preoccupied with money.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, having trouble letting that relationship go. Yeah. And uh, thinks that it'll die alone. All right. <laughs> uh, your eating practice. Give us an oh, example.
1: Eating. Eating is such a great one. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned, I have a history with anorexia. So restricting food is one of the stress coping mechanisms that I have. And controlling my, my food environment. Um, and so one of the ways that I used food in my sexual assault recovery used in the past, I still practice this um, and it's an ongoing, like it's a lifelong thing, but
0: used in a healthy way or an unhealthy way
1: uh, in a, as a tool in okay. a healthy way. So I think of, I think of food as a way to practice consent with my own body. So um, when I feel hungry and I feed myself, I'm honoring my desire And I'm listening to the signals of my body and I'm nourishing myself with kindness. And when I stop eating, when I'm full, I'm honoring that consent cue of no, thank you. I've had enough. I don't want any more. And that alone, and there are other food practices that I do. And there's a whole chapter in the book called eat. Um, But that alone, just trying to tune into those hunger and fullness signals is such a practice. Some people call it intuitive eating, um, But it's really just honoring the hunger and and fullness cues. And really, that's a desire and a pleasure practice as well. So I have some rules for eating. Um, One is that if I'm eating, I'm sitting down, ideally. Another one is I don't like you. I don't care for
0: you. (laughs) You're making me think about things I don't want to think about. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) Um, The second one is to chew, Um, you know, just to chew enough that I can taste the food. Get out of my house. Um, I know I'm not going (laughs) to like the third one. What's the third one? (laughs) The third one is that I try to relax my belly.
0: I never even thought about that.
1: Yeah, because, I i mean, for me, eating can be stressful. Like, there's mm-hmm. there's stress associated with it in, in these various ways. And so, you know, the sitting down helps with just, like, eating in a relaxed way. Mm-hmm. Um, But I find that for myself, I just need to have that extra moment of, like, am I relaxing? Like, am I relaxing mm-hmm. my belly? Because a lot of the time, I'll find that I'm eating, I'm speeding, I'm kind of leaning forward, and uh, my stomach is all tensed up, and that's not really a good... Position to receive the the mm. nourishment that I'm trying to offer myself. And so um, the secret fourth rule is to forgive myself when I don't do those things because you know mm. life happens and you can't always follow all those three rules. but in general, I try to really respect the food that I'm eating and I try to enjoy it. I try to really bring pleasure into food mm. um, and pay attention, you know not only to how does this taste? and am I full now, but also, how is my body receiving this food like hours later? You know, does, does this f- food still feel good to me? Like, am I feeling sort of energized and mm-hmm. good or lethargic or whatever? And so you know, food—it's just such an immediate way to practice so many things. There's mindfulness in there. There's meditation in there. There's pleasure, desire, consent. Like, there's a lot of stuff that you can practice by yeah. playing with your food, and you do it every day. Right. And most of us, you know, hopefully have some control over what we're choosing to eat, and when, and how, and with whom. And uh, I think a lot of us have really complex relationships with food for That's lots of different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> that is an understatement. <laughs> yeah.
0: As you were talking about that, I, I was thinking. I look out the window and my mind wanders uh, a lot of times when I'm standing up eating at the kitchen sink. Um, And sometimes I'll just have a compulsion to eat the whole pint of ice cream because I'm so excited that this documentary I just started watching is going to be super dark and fucked up and it feels weirdly comforting and I want the the ice cream to just turbo comfort
1: the comfort
0: of being... In my safe little cocoon, yeah. being reminded how horrifying the world can be.
1: Right, right.
0: It would take two days to unpack all of that. What's What's the next <laughs> yeah, thing?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. There's so much there for sure. There's lots to talk about with food, um, and then uh, sexual practices. I think was the other thing I was talking about. So mindful sexuality. There's lots to talk about here too. But um, you know, it kind of goes back to that same practice of of being present, of paying attention to how my body is responding. Um, in the moment, and um, you know, one of the things that that I, I really think is not talked about enough, and a huge reason why I wrote this book and wanted to really talk about it, is that you know we don't really acknowledge how complicated pleasure is. And you know, I think about the difference between pleasure and craving. So we were talking a moment ago about how sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between is this my passion and my intuition or is it an addictive habit?
0: Right, right. In the book, you talk about uh, desire versus craving. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Desire versus craving and also pleasure versus, um, versus craving to a mm-hmm. degree. So um, when, when I'm experiencing pleasure, pleasure requires me to be in my body. I have to feel my body if I'm going to feel pleasure. Right. Whereas if I'm just a satisfying a craving, um, the only thing I'll feel is relief. And the craving wants to keep feeding itself.
0: So like compulsively looking at pornography or something, something that's a way of escaping our life rather than connecting us to something that is healthy, be it uh, love of our own body through masturbating or sexual intimacy with a partner that where we have communication and trust.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the, the, the sense of relief is the relief that I don't have to feel my feelings anymore. Right. So that's often where that comes from. And this desire to just not be present. Right. And so that's, that's kind of where the addictive stuff will, will start coming from is that desire to just not be in the body. So desire and pleasure are really more so about drawing you towards things that make you feel more.
0: Right. That, that years ago, I wasn't even aware that losing myself in playing a video game for 10 hours or looking at pornography for three hours was a way of avoiding mm-hmm. something. I thought, oh, I just really like this thing. And and I didn't realize that it was a, a way of I knew it was a way of avoiding my to do list, but right. I didn't know it was a way of avoiding feelings of worthlessness, hopelessness. Yeah, you know, what the yeah. big ones.
1: Absolutely. And and so the mindfulness principle can kind of teach you in that moment, like, do I really like this? Like, how do I feel when I'm doing it? And if you realize, like, I don't really feel anything when I'm doing it, and that's what I like about it, um, that's just some information. And it's not that you should never do those things. Like, right. sometimes we do need to check out. Like, let's be honest, being present all the time is really intense. It's really um, intense. And we need to have our ways to check yeah. out a little bit sometimes. Like, I think that's totally fair, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, you know, right. or no, anything no, like that. No, I love but. that, uh,
0: uh, approaching it from... I just want information. It doesn't mean yeah, I'm going to yeah. judge based on the information. Exactly. But under, understanding what our intent is right, in something exactly. is hugely important in moving towards the person that we want to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes me think of um, I. I did some work to break a Facebook addiction not too long ago, and I. I one of the things that I did with that is that I would log myself out of Facebook. So I would have to take an extra step to get back into it, which mm-hmm. is, was putting in my password. And so whenever I opened the tab and the password screen would come up, that would be my signal to myself to ask myself, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. What is the thing that I desire from this interaction? And so I would pause and, you know, if it was news, I could go read the news. You know, if it was connecting with somebody, I could text a friend or, you know, con- try to connect in some other way and if i was just bored and wanted some entertainment, you know, there were other ways that i could do that. So i kind of pulled apart a little bit what was going on there. And one of the things i really learned about myself is that wow, social media is something that really comes from like when i'm lonely, i will be more engaged with it and i'll be looking at it more. It's like a way of wanting to feel more connected and safer somehow. Seen. Seen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And connected, but it's but it doesn't actually and again, it, that's the, the thing is like, oh, I, I'm going here because I want to feel connected. I've been scrolling for two hours. Do I feel any more connected? No, <laughs> no, I don't. So good information, right? It's right. like, okay, that's what that is. Maybe there are other ways that I can try to connect myself here. Yeah,
0: Facebook should almost be called everybody else's highlight reel. Yeah, 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 you know exactly. Or sad story. It seems yeah. like it's, it's the
1: extremes. Yeah,
0: the extremes. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else you'd like to share?
1: Um, Yeah, just on that piece about pleasure, I just wanted to mention one more thing about that, which is that, um, you know, as I was saying, pleasure requires us to feel. And I think that what we need to understand about pleasure is that sometimes an experience of pleasure directly brings up pain. Um, And so, you know, if you're having a sexual experience with someone or if you're masturbating, um, having sexual pleasure, and especially if you're someone who has been assaulted or has had heartbreak or painful relationships in the past um having loving intimacy with someone is incredibly triggering (laughs) it can be so upsetting to have someone treat us with like love and care because sometimes it just immediately brings up this grief that we feel that we didn't have that love and care before
0: because it's a contrast to to what we had experienced
1: exactly so you know when we have the sense of like oh we all want more pleasure in our lives let's just go and experience pleasure Sure. But if you're going to go down that path, you have to have tools to make space for the really painful things that are going to come up with that. And I think that the more we do have those tools and, you know, I talk about, you know, masturbation as a practice, a meditation practice, really, it's something that you can do, where you are actively holding space for the stuff that will come up, you let it come up. And you have that noticing without judgment. And It kind of moves through your body, and it doesn't always come back. Sometimes it just needed to say hi and just let Mm -hmm. you know that it was there, and then you acknowledged it. You kind of let it go, and then it doesn't come up the next time or something else comes up the next time.
0: Can you give me some examples of things that would come up when you were
1: (laughs) masturbating?
0: (laughs) Would would it be uh, I'm I'm feeling shame because I'm picturing this thing or – um, I'm just realizing I don't do this enough and I haven't been taking care of myself. I mean, like what, what so yeah. talk so are we talking about? It can about? be so many things. I'm feeling so, so creepy asking you yeah. <laughs> this question, but, it, it, you know, I, it's...
1: Masturbation meditation, it's a it's a good tool. And we can all do it. It's just all within our hands. Be, I don't want to be
0: the... the, the the creepy guy, but I I found myself wondering, well, what is, what is she talking about?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing that can come up is memory of an assault. Um, definitely memories of past heartbreaks or people that we've been with sexually before. Um, and sometimes it's not even about sex. Sometimes it's just like, you know, I might have an experience of like, whoa, wave of shame out of nowhere, you know, not related to anything or like wave of loneliness or sadness or, you know, maybe anger, like there's just all kinds of stuff that can come up and sometimes it's related to specific things and, you know, it's, I'll find that sometimes uh, my mind is kind of working out some things on that level and I'm not exactly sure. The way that we talk about, uh, we have a a mind, like a brain, and then we have sort of a heart awareness. We talk about like moving from our heart And then we have that gut intuition that we were talking about. I think our sexual body is its own little zone that has its own way of processing and experiencing the world. And so, you know, when we make the choice to engage with it in a mindful way, whether that's with a partner or alone we're kind of checking in with our genitals and sort of asking, like, how do you feel about this? Like, you know, uh, we have, um, and and just a sort of a a very literal way that we can think about that is um, the pelvic floor is uh, the net of muscles that surrounds the genitals. And when we're under stress, one of the first things that will happen is that it contracts. Um, And so when we're in a sexual experience, when we have orgasms, the pelvic floor contracts uh, over and over again in a release and so uh, we can hold stress literally in that area. And so whatever we've been stressed about, whatever we've been feeling, whether that's an old trauma or just like the meeting you had today with your boss or whatever it is, it can sometimes be held in that area. And I think that when we do these loving sexual self-pleasure practices or or mindful sexual practices with, with uh, our partners, if we choose to, um, that it's sort of like we haven't talked to that part of our body all day and we're sort of checking in with it and maybe it has some things to say. Right. And so we're, we're just sort of working that out and letting that be in the room. And I think when we have this idea that, you know, sexual experiences should only ever be like this hot, fun, passionate, porn, porn-looking porn thing, um, that just isn't the case. And I think for mm. a lot of people, there are so many emotions that can come up and sensations with sex that aren't necessarily even always sexual. And sometimes they are as well, and that will obviously be a part of what comes up. But there's so much there, and like we really, it's just another way of kind of honoring that we're, we're whole, complex mm-hmm. human beings and there's a lot going on in there. And we, we need to really honor that instead of just pretending like we're performing this thing that's right. supposed to look a certain way.
0: For, for me, the, the conversations before, after, and even during sex are as important to me as the sex mm-hmm. the navigating that of you know do you like this here you know here's what I like are you okay with this uh you know i i i'd you know like to indulge that thing that brings you pleasure um uh you don't need to be self- conscious about that uh, I mean those are how, how do you not have those conversations and find intimacy with somebody. I, I yeah. can't imagine because we're so complex. Yeah and every person's uh you know dashboard of buttons that gets them to certain places is set so up a, a little yeah. bit different. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of the fun for me yeah. is learning somebody else's I'm starting to hate this metaphor, but somebody else's dashboard and (laughs) showing them mine because so so many of us are like, oh, I have the fucking ugliest dashboard you have ever. It is a mess of Mm -hmm. buttons that just look selfish and gross. And and then when somebody's like, oh, my God, I love your dashboard. It's really fun. Yeah, yeah. It's like, really?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's so
0: fun to be around that person. Yeah
1: absolutely yeah because that's a that's a vulnerability yeah you know it's amazing to me that we most of us have sex without vulnerability and so much of porn really and i'm not anti-porn there's lots of great porn out there i'm not against it but i think sometimes we get this impression from porn that it's like that it's not vulnerable and so we're trying to have sex without vulnerability and it just you can do it it's Mm -hmm. sort of a performance but it's not intimacy
0: right it's entertainment
1: yeah, which is fine. That has its, it's place. fine. It has <laughs> yeah. a place. Yeah. yeah. Uh anything else? Um
0: we covered a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: We went to lots of places. Your
0: your book is great. It's called Want uh, 8 Steps to Rediscovering Desire, Passion, and Pleasure After Sexual Assault. Um, Julie, thank you so much for uh coming by, being a guest, being so uh, honest and vulnerable, mentioning me in your book. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being able to have these conversations.
0: And we'll put links to uh, all your stuff under the, uh, the show notes. Thank you. So glad she could uh, come by and talk about so many things that are difficult to, um, to talk about. Many thanks to her. We are sponsored today by BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, I highly recommend it. They have a great selection of highly qualified counselors that they will match you with just go to betterhelp.com slash mental fill out a questionnaire and if they have one that they feel is a good fit for you they will match you with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, we are also sponsored by the podcast Risk. If you love radically honest, true stories. You guys will love the Risk Podcast. Uh, I've been on there a couple of times and shared some heavy stories from from my life, and just what what they do there I think is really special. Um, People tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. They are way too uncensored for public radio, and there's nothing that's too intimate or too loaded. Uh, The stories are sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary, sometimes truly beautiful. Uh, The host, Kevin Allison, has been a guest on this podcast, and um, it's just, it's a fascinating podcast, really well done. There's stories about a guy getting kidnapped by a drug cartel, a girl who discovered she was living with a cannibal. A woman who learned the person she was sharing kinky fantasies with online was actually her dad. And the stories are told with so much compassion and emotional intelligence. It's just, it's really inspiring. So find it all at risk-show.com or just search on your podcast app for risk exclamation point. That's R-I-S-K exclamation point or risk-show.com. Um. This is a struggle in a sentence survey. And I just want to read one piece from it. It was filled out by a guy who calls himself Detherapressed. And his issue is compulsive eating. And he writes, maybe I can plug up my tear ducts with food. Wow. I love when you guys encapsulate the, uh, the struggle. This is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself. Actually, I just wanted to read her name. Do I have depression or am I just the laziest person on earth? How many of us have thought that thought in our lives? I would say for me, I wouldn't wouldn't say that I think that I'm the laziest person on earth, but think to myself, am I depressed or am I just lazy? I must, I'd say I've probably thought that thought 20,000 times in my life and if I wasn't so lazy I'd think of 30,000 times about her depression uh, she describes it binging on TV shows for hours surrounded by a complete mess an episode ends I look around at myself and think fuck I live like an animal I need to clean as I click on the next episode this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Juice and he writes in my in my mid-90s in the mid-90s my grandpa was on life support for having a stroke he had been in a coma for three months and the doctors notified the family that the decision should be made my family decided to pull the plug and let nature take, take its course the family gathered in the room where my grandpa was staying and the doctor yells to my grandpa saying Vic if you do not wake up We will pull the plug, and you will likely die. In an instant, my grandpa pops up and yells, Well, that's just cruel. He was up walking around the next day and went on to live another five years. To this day, it makes me smile. Even in death, he had a sense of humor. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Sleepy Sappy Love Cat. And she writes, Putting clean sheets on my bed for the first time in eight months better late than never I, I'm i disgusted by my sheets when I haven't washed them for a week or ten days eight months that is like sleeping on cheddar cheese <laughs> I'm sorry for that for that visual but thank god you, you finally washed them This is an awful some moment filled out by a woman who calls herself meningitis got me down and she writes when I was two years old I had meningitis and was rushed to a special hospital because my temperature was so high I suffered a stroke while I was going through all of this my father needed to go to a prayer meeting my mother didn't question it at the time we were a religious family in reality he was having an affair I guess he wasn't lying I'm sure he said oh god a lot they ended up getting a divorce And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman. Actually, it's a gender-fluid person uh, who calls themselves Sky, and they write, I wanted to write out this happy moment before my day turned to crap, but I feel now is more important than ever to remember the happy moment. It was simple. Yesterday, I rode my bike in the sun through all the beautiful parks and woodland that I lived near and realized that I felt free from so, so much stuff. This year has been dreadful and in a parenthesis, I swear this is a happy moment. Finishing my degree nearly killed me and it has been three years of constant panic about failure or things getting worse. At the same time, watching my last dog's back legs get weaker and weaker and worrying about things getting worse for him has also been an ongoing struggle. I finished my degree and last month had to say goodbye to my dog. Riding around the park we used to go to didn't upset me, although I'm crying right now as I type this. I realized my freedom. The baggage of my degree is over. Nothing can get worse. It's over. Nothing can hurt my dog. He's at peace, and I don't have to worry about things being worse for him. He is okay. And at this time, riding in the sun, I felt okay too. I'm so privileged that I can live with my mom and she can financially support me while I look for jobs. I'm in this weird but beautiful period of my life where I can figure myself out And pour my energy into the volunteer work I love while taking care of myself. Right now it feels different, and I'm full of rage and sadness that after seven years of seeking treatment I'm being moved around to the things I've started with. Weirdly, even this is a happy moment for me too. I won't tolerate it. My anger is justified, and I'm using it to either try to fight with myself when I can, to fight myself when I can, but if not then I am fighting for change within the mental health system in the UK to summarize things get worse things get better worse better etc they change and i guess that's enough reason to stick around such a, such a realistic description of a fucking life and in going through this little low that i've been going through the last couple of weeks that that's the nice thing about having a track record of life <laughs> being difficult is that you know there are moments when then life gets beautiful. And it's also really nice having a, a girlfriend who is there for me. You know, I went to her a couple of nights ago and I said, I'm just feeling really sad. Can I lay my head on your lap? And I did. And she was just stroking my head and giving me little kisses. And, and it felt so good because even though I was depressed in that moment, I felt love and, and little tears started coming out of my eyes, and if I could feel a release, I was jacking off at the time too. Why, why can't I just leave that moment nice? Why do I gotta Why do I have to defile it like the lung cancer? Anyway, I, I hope you got something out of this episode, and uh, if you're out there and you're struggling and you're feeling alone, you are not. You' are so not alone. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. I know know is weird way. bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.